This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Three Defense Department nominees are on their way to confirmation tonight after yesterday's hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Air Force Secretary nominee Frank Kendall, CAPE Director nominee Susanna Bloom, and Undersecretary for Research and Engineering nominee Heidi Hsu all faced little to no opposition in the hearing Tuesday. Defense News reports the Senate's likely to confirm all three nominees. Navy sailors who have coronavirus vaccines don't have to quarantine before they deploy, according to new guidance. The Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Operations, Plans and Strategy, Vice Admiral Phil Sawyer, says his service has gained, quote, significant expertise in mitigating the virus in the past year plus. USNI News reports commanding officers can let vaccinated sailors use base services during port calls, too. The USS Theodore Roosevelt's back in port tonight after its second overseas deployment in 16 months. The carrier's been in the Pacific and Indian Oceans and off the shore of Alaska since it left San Diego last October. USNI News reports the Roosevelt's in Naval Air Station North Island, California. That confirmation hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee yesterday included a lot of questions for Air Force Secretary nominee Frank Kendall about the F-35. That's only one big decision point Kendall faces if the Senate confirms him. Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, U.S. Air Force retired, dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He's writing about the top five action items for the next Air Force Secretary in Forbes. Dave, welcome. It's great to see you again, General. Thanks for coming on. These five points that you point out, whether it's Frank or somebody else, looks like it will be him, um, include some pretty big rocks to move. Which of these five, before we take them in turn, do you think is the most important to pay attention to? Well, Francis, uh, first, thanks very much for having me on this morning. If I was to uh, prioritize these top five that I've mentioned, uh, I, I believe the greatest priority should go to getting rid of the pass-through of $40 billion that is uh, included in the Department of the Air Force accounts, but which the Department of the Air Force has absolutely zero uh, control over. Uh, and I know it's a bit of an esoteric issue but it it is enormous in the context of how it uh, 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 mischaracterizes the resources that are being given to the air force you write about a concept in here also that i think is interesting and you put it this way advocate for the dod to adopt and apply cost per effect force planning analysis what's that concept mean and why is it important dave well, it's important because it's the best way to achieve lasting and uh, very quick efficiencies for the Department of Defense while boosting combat capability. Uh, and, and that is, and let me very briefly use an example of cost per effect. Um, today, everyone focuses on unit cost, whether it be an aircraft, a ship, a combat uh, ground vehicle. Uh, but what cost per effect does is it takes a look of not just individual weapon system cost, but let me give you a, a case. If I can accomplish a strike in a contested battle space 
with two fifth generation aircraft, F-22s or F-35s, that would take a force package of 15 to 20 other non-stealth aircraft. You tell me, which one's the most cost effective? Um, the, the answer is the F-22 or the F-35, because it doesn't take as many. That kind of a consideration in terms of what's required to achieve a mission effect is how the Department of Defense needs to consider new weapon systems in the future. Okay, and that connects then to another item on your list for the next Air Force Secretary, which is to strongly advocate for a comprehensive and complete roles and missions review of the armed forces, not the Air Force, you write armed forces. This should be holistic across the department, it sounds like. No, absolutely. I mean, let's be pragmatic. I mean, we all recognize, even though many of us in the defense business recognize that to meet the needs of today's national security strategy, we need about a three to 5% increase on an annual basis to the Department of Defense budget, but we're not gonna get that. So the best thing that we could possibly do is to look across all the services and look at where there's excessive overlap, again, not within the stovepipes of the services, but across all the services and do some balancing to yield the best effects uh, to make sure that we have all the mission areas covered. But there is a lot of duplication. A good case in point is the Army's going out there investing billions in building new hypersonic surface-to-surface -surface missiles um, that are enormously costly and they're not reusable. Well, uh, you can accomplish the same thing, if not better, and in a reusable fashion by increasing the buy of B-21s, the next long-range uh, stealthy bomber. Another item on your list, Dave, is recapitalizing the Air Force's geriatric air combat capacity. I love that word. And completing current air aircraft programs of record. Um, I mentioned the F-35 questions to Frank at this hearing. His response, I'm paraphrasing, was we should probably buy more in order to keep the cost per unit down. He's back to cost per unit versus cost per effect. But the point is, it sounds like that's that staying the course is the same thing that he's thinking. Am I hearing it right? Yeah, I think so. Now, listen, cost is important. But again, in the case of the F-35, it's a double win because now it's actually on a per unit cost basis less expensive than new old fourth generation aircraft like the F-15EX, which costs more on a unit basis, but it also takes many, many more to accomplish the same mission. And you're right, we do have a geriatric Air Force. We've got bombers that are 60 years old, Francis, tankers and trainers that are over 50, and fighters that are over 30 years of age. Um, and we uh, the Air Force has major capacity shortfalls across all its highest mission priority areas. So the way to fix this is to stick with the programs of record that we have today, actually accelerate the F-35 buy, increase the B-21 buy, and get the C-46 online as soon as possible. About a minute left. The last item on your list regards the Space Force. Uh, what does a mature Space Force look like? Resources, people, et cetera. Well, um, Francis, I'd tell you that right now today, the Space Force is underfunded, it's undermanned, and it does not have the authorities to integrate the numerous and disparate organizations and agencies that have a hand in space to fulfill its mandate of providing trained and ready space forces to combatant commanders. 
Um, to put it in perspective, the Space Force receives only 2% of the entire DOD budget. That has to change. And we need to start buying capabilities that we can actually conduct effective military operations in space uh, and, and perform both offensive and defensive missions. That's gonna take more money and it's gonna take a good look across the Department of Defense to determine how to appropriately fund the Space Force. Dave, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on, appreciate your time. You bet, Francis, have a great day. You can read Dave's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, reading the tea leaves to predict the coming defense budget. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the plus-ups and pay-fors to watch for. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The 2022 budget request for the Defense Department is due any day. The hints of what may be included are in the skinny budget the Biden administration released last month. Stacey Pettyjohn is senior fellow and director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. She and her colleague Becca Wasser are writing about the budget under the title Making Sense of Sense. Stacey, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. First, I love the title, so kudos for that. Um, you identified some strategic objectives in the skinny budget. What did you see there? Sure. First, I have to give credit to the to the for the title to Becca because that was all of her idea. So, um, in terms of objectives, one of the overriding ones to keep in mind is the fact that the Biden administration has promised to elevate non-military school uh, tools of uh, diplomacy and statecraft. So, you see, the Defense Department is still very well funded with a seven hundred fifteen billion dollar top line, but. Um, within that context, more resources are going to the Department of State, Commerce, Treasury, USAID, other, other institutions. In general, though, the strategic guidance that has been given is largely a continuation of what the Trump administration had done in terms of prioritizing great power competition, in particular with an emphasis on focusing on the pacing threat, which is China, Russia, Russia being a revanchist power and a slightly lesser threat. In addition to that, you find that the Biden administration elevates some other missions for the department that were not as as much of a priority under the last administration. And that includes countering transnational threats such as climate change and bio threats, such as the pandemic that has been plaguing all of us now. You write about uh, six areas of interest in this work, and you suggest that uh, the department will have to realign resources, and you list those as the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, long-range fires, naval shipbuilding, research and development, uh, nuclear modernization, transnational threats. Um, what has to go, do you think, in or what are you proposing should go in order to get money to direct to those priorities? We didn't propose anything that should go, um, and this is an area of great contention because what actually constitutes a legacy system is not uh, entirely apparent since some really old weapon systems still are quite useful, like the B-52 aircraft. What you have heard is that there have been rumors um, and leaks that the Air Force is planning to divest some 400-plus uh, older aircraft, including the F-15C uh, D models, 
um, as well as some other systems um, in order to make room in their budget to fund some of their modernization priorities, such as the advanced battle management system and um, the next generation air dominance fighter. Um, there have also been rumors that, uh, at least from the FY21 uh, program of record, that one less destroyer is going to be funded in um, this uh, FY22 budget request. But all of that remains to be seen right now. Is that a potential strategy to uh, work around cases? You referenced the ATAN and others in your work that uh, the services have tried to get rid of in the past and haven't been able to. Congress won't let them. We'll speak on the program in a moment about the littoral combat ship and the Navy decommissioning two of those ships a number of years early. And I wonder if that doesn't turn into more of a long-term strategy for the services to just accelerate divestiture of pieces rather than trying to get rid of whole programs and meeting resistance on Capitol Hill. Is that something maybe to pay attention to moving forward, uh, Stacey, that we, should, that we should expect to maybe see more of? I would think so. I mean, you've seen the Air Force say that they're going to keep the A-10 at least in the leaks right now. Um, it's one of the four plus one, though they're slowly going to move to phase it out as over the next five, six years. Um, but it doesn't yield as great of cost savings when you continue to keep a, a line open because the maintenance requirements are still there and the spare parts are needed. So greater savings come from actually divesting of an entire type of a system, but that might not be politically feasible. When the budget drops in the next few days, what's the first thing that you'll look at? People who are interested in these things usually have a thing that they wanna see first. Do you have a thing that you want to see first, Stacey? I've been very intrigued by the long-range fires debates, uh, given that all of the services are uh, heavily vested in this area and have a lot riding on it. And I think there are some reasons that you might want redundancy in terms of long-range fires, because um, when you are planning to fight or uh, deter a great power, you need to ensure that your system is resilient, which means that you know, you're not trying to be as efficient as possible. But I'm really curious to see whether the new mid-range capability that the Army's trying to acquire is funded. That's either the Tomahawk cruise missiles or SM-6 in large part because that is going to require the Army to create some new force structure to support those units since they don't exist right now. It, it has been something that uh, the in, former Indo-PACOM commander had highlighted as a priority having post-INF ground-based missiles in the first and second island change in the Pacific. But um, right now there isn't any country that is quite willing to host them either. So um, I'll be interested to see whether uh, the department decides to make those investments right now. Stacy Petty, John, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Up next, the first two littoral combat ships head for the scrapyard early. Straight ahead on Government Matters is the Navy giving up on the LCS. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Navy will send the first two littoral combat ships to the scrapyard later this year. Those ships will leave the fleet 
just over a decade after the Navy commissioned both of them. Seth Cropsey, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, he's former deputy undersecretary of the Navy. Seth, I use the term scrapyard figuratively, but it's hard to think that this is not, that this is not a good situation for the Navy. I read from the Navy Times, the Freedom, the first LCS, goes inactive September 30th, less than 13 years after the ship was commissioned. The second LCS, Independence, gets its shadow box July 31st after 11 and a half years of service. These were supposed to last a quarter of a century and they're already going out of the fleet. What's your take or your sense of what the situation is with these ships, Seth? Well, the situation is that the uh, the requirements of the West Pacific in particular today are different from the requirements of 20 years ago when the global war on terror was the, uh, the most important single issue for the Navy and, and participating in it. Uh, so um, the strategic situation in the world has changed substantially. Uh, and the Navy is left to deal with ships that were built for a different purpose. And those the, the purpose for which they've been built um, has failed in, in, in uh, notab notably uh, to be productive. Um, in particular, the modules, and that is one of the key features of the ship. In other words, its ability, the ship's ability to perform different missions by simply moving uh, modules in the ship in and out has not succeeded uh, over a long period and that doesn't help things either. My recollection of this 15 years or so ago when these ships uh, first were, were commissioned and entered into the fleet was that there was a lot of skepticism at the time that the mission packages wouldn't work. What, what do we do about that? How do we apply that lesson learned to future programs. We're thinking about a frigate program to replace LCSs uh, right now. That pro uh, program is in progress. What do we think about when we look at the frigate to make sure we don't make these mistakes again and find ourselves in the same place in a decade? Uh, <clears throat> better design, uh, more careful uh, attention uh, to the strategic requirements, uh, and uh, uh, I think it's also very important uh, that we consider um, unmanned vessels as a supplement to uh, what surface combatants can and, and ought to do. Uh, so uh, there certainly are lessons learned from the, the mistakes with, the, well, not mistakes, but the, the failure to complete the modular system. Uh, but that's been done throughout the world um, successfully, uh, having modular systems. Uh, and I think that the, 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 the real necessity here, the real requirement is, um, begins with asking the question, what kind of mix we want in the fleet? Uh, what best meets our strategic needs? Um, and when those questions are answered, the questions about design will fall much more naturally into place, and those questions have not been answered yet. Who needs to answer those questions? The Navy needs to answer those questions. 
That's the Navy's responsibility. That's the, 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 the one of the most important jobs that they have is to understand what their mission is and to be able to persuade uh, Congress and the American people uh, that it's worth spending money on. And that has not been done. Um, this note from the Navy Times story, uh, CNO Gilday said during congressional testimony last month he was bullish on the future of the LCS, praising the ship's performance on recent missions in the West Pacific and uh, Southern Command, where the ships are increasingly taking on counter-narcotics missions. What, what do we really need ships to be doing now? Do we need them to be doing counter-narcotics missions in those parts of the world? Or uh, it, it, does, does that fit with the, the national defense strategy and great power competition, Seth? You have to decide, and this is part of strategy, which is more important, the counter-narcotics mission or the possibility of being defeated at sea by China in a war? We have about 30 I seconds left, Seth. I, it, and the answer to your question, I, I know you didn't mean it rhetorically, but it seems rather obvious. Um, what do we do moving forward about the LCS program? Is it something that, I mean, we're kind of stuck with it for now for, for some period, aren't we? Uh, it seems so, although there's likely there'll be fewer and fewer of them. I mean, the LCS is not big or powerful enough for larger combatant duty, and it's too big and costly uh, at $50 million a year to operate to conduct uh, anti-hybrid warfare gray zone tactics. Uh, so I don't think that it has much of a place uh, in the future if what... If, if our major concern is the uh, the possibility of war with China in the West Pacific, I don't think the LCS uh, makes a great deal of difference there. Seth Cropsey. Seth Cropsey, thanks very much. Great to have you back on the program. Thank you, Francis. It's always a pleasure. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. Just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again, and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.